Coming up on Tech Nation, journalist Oliver Brody takes us across the country to examine the rise of environmental illness and search for America's last pure place. His book is The Sensitives. Then in biotech, a San Diego company that was in the final stages of testing for a drug treating parainfluenza and influenza. Well, they immediately switched to target COVID, starting in Wuhan, China. Dr. Stanley Lewis, the chief medical officer of Anson Biopharma, joins me. All this and more coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, ESPN investigative journalist Mark Fainaru Wada talks about the incidence of repeated brain trauma to professional football players. In journalism, we ask, what did you know? When did you know it? And what did you do when you found out? That, in a nutshell, reflects his book, League of Denial, the NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. Yeah, it is. That's, I mean, when, when Steve and I set out to sort of embark on this project, that was exactly what we, we sort of were after, was what did the NFL know and when did it know it? Um, we were struck to find out that they'd known a lot for two decades, really, and, and seemed to rather than embrace the, the science, um, in many cases seem to bury it as, as scientists emerge sort of raising warnings to them about the connection between football and possible brain damage. I think it's interesting. There was a lot of incredibly good reporting that had been done over the years on this topic, for sure. And, and um, you know, the, the New York Times had done some fantastic work. Colleagues of ours at ESPN, um, GQ had done a couple of fantastic pieces on the subject. But it really wasn't until 2010 when Congress actually got involved in the process, called the NFL to the Hill, and really rake them over the coals. It's that point, I think, that the level of awareness really ratchets up. And then I, I think for us, what was interesting was to see that while you had all this reporting that had been done, there was so much out there that hadn't really been focused on around about what the NFL actually knew, when it knew it, and how it had dealt with that information once it had it. Well, I was so surprised to hear that they had a mild traumatic brain injury committee since 1994. That year is called the year of the concussion in the NFL. There's a number of high-profile players who have concussions. A couple of players have retired prematurely because of concussions. So there's a large sort of growing sense of awareness around concussions in the NFL. And at, at one point during that time, the commissioner of the league, Paul Tagliabue, is at the, the 92nd Street Y in New York. He's being interviewed by the fantastic journalist David Halberstam. Halberstam starts asking him about this issue of concussions in football. And there's just a great scene where... Tagliabue basically dismisses it entirely, and he says, so this is a media-created issue. This is really not a problem. And he starts sort of trotting out statistics that the NFL has that there's maybe one concussion every three games, and Halberstam stops him in the middle, and, and Halberstam has come back from Vietnam and covering and hearing the press you know, get fed these statistics about Vietnam, and he, and he gives this line about feeling like he's back in, in Vietnam, hearing the numbers from, uh, um, from the, from the there U.S. Are military. There are people in the country. It can't yeah, be yes. true. <laughs> and and he, there's just roars at the 92nd Street Y. But that's the context in which this MTBI committee is formed. And, you know, the commissioner puts the head of that committee, uh, a gentleman named Elliot Pellman. And that really reflects 
his attitude in that meeting with Halberstam and then appointing this guy, Elliot Pellman, who is not at all a specialist in brains. He's a, he's a rheumatologist. He's a rheumatologist, exactly. And so that, I think, reflected the mentality of the league at the time when it went after this issue of concussions in the sport. This committee ended up producing 16 different research papers on the issue of concussions in the NFL. And for a period of time, they produced a couple of papers that were well-received in the research community. But eventually, that committee, when it got to paper number three, suddenly began to produce a series of papers that sent the message that concussions were not a big deal on the NFL. And time and time again, every paper they produced sent that message. And the interesting thing about all of that research was it ended up in one singular journal. The editor-in-chief of that journal was a guy named Mike Apuzo, a neurosurgeon from USC who also happened to be a consultant to the New York Giants football team. So you had this guy working with the NFL, letting papers be published time and time again that were saying concussions are not a big deal in the NFL. This 2013 Tech Nation interview with ESPN investigative journalist Mark Finaruwada featured his book, League of Denial, The NFL, Concussions, and the Battle for Truth. For his reporting, Mark went on to receive a George Polk Award, the Dick Schapp Award for Outstanding Journalism, and the Associated Press Sports Editor Award. League of Denial was made into a frontline documentary, which itself was awarded a Peabody. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. 5 Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. 5 Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, I speak with award-winning journalist Oliver Brody. He took a trip in search of the sensitives, the rise of environmental illness, and the search for America's last pure place. Then in biotech, Dr. Stanley Lewis, the chief medical officer of Anson Biopharma. He tells us how they quickly converted their mission to develop treatments for parainfluenza and influenza in the last stages of testing and turn their attention to COVID. They started it in Wuhan, China. TechNation is underwritten in part by MindK, a global software development force in a world where every business can be global. On the web at mindk.com. And now, Oliver Brody. Oliver, welcome to TechNation. Thanks, great to be here. I hadn't read your book beyond a few pages, and I suddenly remembered going into a brand new broadcast studio, new acoustic panels, new microphones, new carpet, and without consulting myself consciously, I literally backed out of the door. (laughs) Couldn't put my finger on it, but it was just, it was too much. Is this sort of an element of what we're talking about here? I think so. I mean, I I think that we live in a world, we do live in a world that's just suffused with chemicals or something like 85,000 untested, um, well, semi-tested, most of them untested synthetic chemicals on the market. Average person is exposed to something like 17 pesticides every day. There's 9,000 food additives. And we've, I think, by and large, accustomed ourselves to this. 
in part because we don't really have an option. Um, but I think that we mostly move through a bit of a fog, not really knowing what is dangerous and what isn't. You know, we have a regulatory system that's supposed to keep track of things, but it really doesn't. It really can't. Um, you know, aside from uh, whatever political power happens to be in office at the time, they're just it's not even possible uh, to keep track of all this stuff. So we're, we're all just sort of along for the ride and trying to do our best. Now, EI, environmental illness. I'd not heard that term before, either EI or environmental illness. What's the source of that? Well, um, so this is mostly a, a book about a disease that is highly contested. Uh, the medical establishment, by and large, does not believe it's real. Uh, and the people who suffer from it naturally believe it is. So there's a lot of uh, politics that kind of goes on around the naming, depending on where you're coming from. Um, you might you might prefer one name as opposed to another because every name includes some tacit bit of blame or fault, you know, whether it's on the part of the chemical industry or the people who are suffering from it. So I kind of had to choose between a number of different terms to go with. And I ended up going with environmental illness for a couple reasons. First, because it seemed fairly neutral, uh, and also because it seemed the most inclusive, because we're not really just talking about chemicals, ultimately. Uh, many of the people that I was uh, speaking with suffered from uh, sensitivity to mold, some of them to electromagnetic frequencies. So it just seemed like the safest and most inclusive term. And inclusive it is in the sense that there are over 50 million Americans who have some form of it. That means you have this or you know someone who has it. Well, to, to be clear, I, I would say that that number it, it probably speaks to the number of people who have some kind of sensitivity. Um, so it's very difficult to talk about what constitutes like a real full-blown environmental illness and what doesn't because the medical community hasn't really given their their thumbprint to this. So what we can say is that there are a lot of people who are sensitive on some level to uh, chemicals or other things in their environment. Uh, and there's a smaller number of people who are disabled, probably like 8% is the number that I remember, uh, meaning that it impacts their life in some very real way. And then there's a smaller number still of people who are seriously, seriously disabled, just basically taken out of the game by these kind of uh, sensitivities. Well, you begin the book with the story of Brian Welsh. So let's start there. Yeah, Brian is a really interesting guy. Um, he started getting sensitivities when he was uh, working at a hospital, I think. Uh, it's been a long time since I revisited this part of the book. But uh, one of the things that's typical of environmental illness is that it has a tendency to spread. So what may start as a sensitivity to one thing, say perfume, may grow and uh, turn into a sensitivity to a whole range of things. Uh, so part of it is uh, t turns into like a battle of trying to stop that spread and try to contain it. Uh, anyway, his sort of spread like crazy over the over the years. And uh, in the end, following a path that many uh, sensitive take, uh, he ended up withdrawing from society, trying and in search to try to find a place where he could exist uh, without any interference. Um, so he ended up somewhere in the, the, the remote wilds of Arizona. But there are a couple things that are interesting to me about Brian. The first is, is how remote he was and really the degree of his suffering and the nature of it. 
um, you have to understand that that uh, when EI kind of reaches its peak, the kind of suffering is almost existential because you're basically made an alien on your own planet. Um, there are a large number of suicides that happen in the uh, EI community. And at one point, uh, this is what was feared uh, happened to, to Brian. He was a participant in a um, an online community of sensitives, uh, one of many that spring up, I think, whenever there is kind of a, a lack of affirmation by uh, the medical establishment. People come together to uh, offer consolation to each other in place of that. And within this community, and this is the other thing that was interesting about Brian, he played a very interesting role. He was kind of like a, um, he sort of channeled people's pain. He was a very good writer. He was very expressive of what it was like to live with EI. And then all of a sudden he went missing. So uh, I figured I'd sort of head out and try to find out what happened to him. The quest to find Brian. So much of this is about pain. And you're right, the science now tells us that women experience pain differently from men. Oh, yeah. Now, this is one of the really fascinating things about the book to me. Um, one of the images that kept coming up to me for me was, um, you know, that, that old image, uh, that Da Vinci image of Vitruvian Man, that guy who's spread eagle between a square and a circle. Uh, and I think, I, I forget what happened, like whether it was carved on, uh, you know, some hard metal and, and sent into outer space or something in case whoever recovered it would have a sense of who, the, you know, who sent it. But it basically, that figure is, stands for what we have come to take as generic human being. But of course, there really is no generic human being. There are many different kinds of human beings. Um, and this is something that we have been very slow to adjust to. Uh, it wasn't until recently that the NIH started requiring their uh, grantees to um, to uh, assure that they would be testing uh, both men and women. Um, and there are studies that show that um, women are generally treated far... Women are accorded far less credibility by doctors than men. So just hysteria. We're hysterical. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if I We've been there. if I recall, um, back in the 1900s, before cancer was understood, cancer was attributed to the feebleness of women because uh, at that point, I forget why, uh, more women were suffering from cancer than men. So you know, when in doubt, blame women. But once you get started going down this road, asking this question of how many bodies are there really, uh, it's not really clear where you end up. We know there's at least two. There's men, there's women, but there's also children. There's infants, there's unborn children. Um, there's one study that I ran across out of Canada that found uh, an amazing number of chemicals, I forget, like I think over 100, in the uh, umbilical cord uh, of an unborn child, uh, including some um, pretty serious pesticides. And this is Canada, you know. So how many would they find down here? The point, anyway, is that, that there are so many different kinds of bodies, and depending on the kind of body you have, uh, you're going to react differently to all of these different chemicals. Uh, and then once you start throwing in the fact that most illnesses, every illness really, is some combination of the psychological and the physical, uh, the number of differences between people's experience become infinite. You're right. Usually it commenced with a single massive toxic exposure. Like what? Oh, you know, some solvent spill. Let's say you're working in a factory. Um, I heard a story like that. Um, but there are also stories of people who had a, were suffered from a series of uh, lower exposures over time. Let's say that someone who, um, there's a story of a woman who was working in, I think it's like strawberry fields, 
picking strawberries or something, and there are pesticides used. Uh, and just over the years, it sort of built up in her system until uh, some kind of threshold was reached. So there's there's a number of different ways it can um, happen. It's funny. A big change for me happened when I was not exposed to chemicals, uh, but rather when I'd gotten a contract to work on robots in a clean room at IBM. And when you work in a clean room, you have to, you know, they always show you the people all in the suits and all of that. But what they don't tell you is that you have no perfumes, no makeup, no laundry detergent with any additives or perfume in it. You have no deodorant, no shampoos with, I mean, you, you are clean and how you clean your clothes, all of this over to has to be right. And so after about six weeks of this, I kind of said, okay, great. That's over. And I could smell everything. <laughs> it was oh, everywhere. <laughs> it's it's sort of interesting if you can somehow withdraw yourself from everything around you and then reintroduce it. You begin to get you begin to get a little sensitive to what's going on. Not in a way that says you can't stand it, but you're like, oh, that's re- that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it makes sense that we become kind of scent numb. Uh, and we make space for uh, all of these uh, chemicals in our environment, again, because we don't really have much of an option. We're very good at adapting. Like, it was, I was just thinking the other day how um, we sort of um, we sort of drop the ball in two different ways. Like, not, not only do we fail to anticipate what might happen, but once bad things do happen, we have a hard time remembering that it was ever otherwise. COVID's a great example. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is journalist Oliver Brody. You may have seen his work in the New York Times or Men's Health, among others, a finalist for the National Magazine Award. He's here today with The Sensitives, The Rise of Environmental Illness and the Search for America's Last Pure Place. Well, let's talk about Snowflake, Arizona, haven for sensitives. Yeah, um, it's it's it served as a kind of a, a mecca. Um, if you're someone who's suffering from uh, a, a sensitivity of this nature, um, you're going to be looking for a place where you can exist peaceably. Um, and uh, it's hard to find these places. It's one guy said to me, uh, the only place that I feel safe was halfway up Mount McKinley. Um, so what I found is that generally people gravitate either to the coast or to the desert. Uh, and Arizona is a pretty popular place. Um, Snowflake has got an elevation of, I think, around 6,000 feet. Um, the air is very dry. There's no industry there. Um, so um, over time, a number of sensitives have sort of gathered there, not in the town, but on the outskirts. Um, and the land's cheap, too. It's like 300 bucks an acre or something. Um, so um, we were passing through there. We were on this uh, road trip from Austin to Los Angeles, uh, me and this um, sensitive that I was taking this trip with. Um, and we thought that we would pass through and say hello to some folks there and pick up a vibe. Well, the community in the past has certainly been betrayed by the media. How did you possibly get an interview? Oh, um, I don't know. I mean, they they really had been, I I don't know whether you said uh, portrayed or betrayed. Uh, It's really kind of both. Um, um, A journalist went in there and and basically served them up uh, as a kind of freak show. Um, And uh, they didn't take too kindly to that. Uh, But it's worth sort of pausing right there and and thinking about that. Um, 
I mean, I have to admit that I was drawn in much the same way, and I think that all of us are in in a certain way. We're drawn by a fascination to characters who are a little bit fringy, and I think part of this is a way of trying to understand possible futures that we might be heading towards without risking anything uh, of ourselves. So you can see a little bit of the same dynamic that happens with preppers. Um, uh, There is the same kind of fascination with preppers, and people kind of portray them as freaks, um, 10 years ago. Who are preppers? Who are preppers? People who um, basically live in anticipation of the end of the world and stockpile two tons of cans of beans uh, and ammunition. Um, but anyway, I mean, like 10 years ago, they seemed ridiculous. And increasingly, people are like, geez, you know, maybe I should stock up too. Uh, so the way I read this this uh, kind of rubbernecking, cultural rubbernecking, if you will, is it reflects a subconscious fear uh, that people have that uh, they really aren't safe and they really are in danger. And uh, I could, you know, throw a bunch of statistics out there to back up the fact that we actually are. Um, thyroid and liver cancer rates are up 300 percent between 1975 and 2014. Uh, Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and kidney cancer, 200 percent up. Uh, myeloid leukemia, um, there is a study that came out a couple of years ago, I'm sure a number of people have seen that uh, noted the drop in um, sperm counts by 50% plus um, autism, allergies. So, you know, all of these things are happening. Nobody really knows why. Uh, what we do know is that the chemical industry has pretty much tripled uh, in the last 10 years or so. And the amount of chemicals being dumped into, into our environment is increasing rapidly. So those numbers are those numbers. The numbers don't lie in this case. I wanted to be really clear uh, about these numbers. I think that there are a lot of books out there that come to this with some kind of an agenda, like we should be frightened. Uh, And my agenda was, should we be frightened? What should we be? I I don't know. Um, You know, I was coming from a place of of profound uncertainty. you know, you get these sort of news items every so often about, um, you know, phthalates in your craft mac and cheese or, um, you know, something's in the drinking water and uh, you never really know what to do with them. Um, and because there's nothing really you can do. Uh, we spend our entire lives from the, um, the moment we're born putting together this very complex risk calculus, uh, not just to ascertain what risks certain things are, but how those risks compare to certain other things, you know. Three glasses of wine versus wearing a seatbelt, for instance. You know, not replacing the fire alarm in your house uh, versus, you know, I don't know, whatever. But we're constantly kind of tweaking uh, this risk calculus, and we're at a point where our risk calculus can't doesn't really apply anymore. It can't really make sense of the kind of threats that we're facing. So I wanted to be as clear as I possibly could uh, when it com- when it came to uh, what the real threat was. And so I was very careful to only cite those numbers that I knew were real. Um, so, for instance, I didn't cite asthma. Like there, people love to talk about asthma, but there's no real. There's no real strong case that that asthma is linked to chemicals or that the numbers are really going up. Um, So I tried to be very careful in trying to figure out what the real threat is. To be clear, you are not a sensitive. No, I'm not. You're not a sensitive, and yet 
you were engaging and attempting to engage with the the people in Snowflake, and you had to gain their trust. And you're describing this all in the book. Was this a challenge for you when you came to writing it, what to write and what not, so that it would would not be interpreted in in a way that could be abusive or or betrayal, as we were talking about earlier? Oh, very much so. Um, I feel that. Um they they did uh, open up to me eventually, and I didn't really feel like I deserved it. Um, but I do feel that um, I owed them something similar in response. Um, and as the trip went on, um, I was thinking more and more about what this book was about. And ultimately, to me, it seemed to be a lot about suffering and the nature of suffering uh, and what how we think about suffering. So... I don't think that we're very good at thinking about suffering, frankly. I mean, I I think that a lot of our ways of dealing with suffering have changed, uh, not for the better in recent years. Um, Just if you just look at the medical system and who's calling the shots now, it's increasingly insurance companies, not doctors. Um, And the patient experience is increasingly kind of disappearing. So by the end of the trip, I, I came to a pretty firm understanding that the suffering of the patient should always come first. Uh, and if you want to try to figure out what's going on, you can do that. But that suffer- you need to make room for that suffering. You need to make room for the experience of the patient. If you wait for, uh, if you only accept or, how to say this, um, if you only acknowledge the existence of things that you already understand, then you, you're basically limiting yourself to those things and will never uh, learn anything else. So uh, just because environmental illness has not been explained yet, it doesn't mean that it won't be. So I, I'm perfectly happy having a, an agnostic uh, view on it. Clearly, there is a desire to avoid the 85,000 chemicals, the 9,000 food additives, the 17 pesticides. There's also an attraction, apparent attraction to supplements. Uh, and describe what, I'm, what supplements are uh, and, and, and why are they doing this? Do you know? The guy that I was traveling with, um, he carried with him a suitcase filled with supplements of various kinds. Uh, and so we would stop at various points along the way and he would open the suitcase and there were probably 50 different bottles of things in there. And, and um, you know, he would sort of juggle through them and throw a few pills down. Um, and uh, it was very odd. Um, but as I came to understand it, um, basically it, it was a sign to me that these folks, first of all, are desperate. Uh, and there comes a point when you're willing to try anything because you're in such misery. Uh, At that point, what other people think of what you're doing doesn't really matter so much because what you're trying to do is feel better. Um, So I think that people are trying to gain control over their own bodies, control that they don't feel that they have, and playing around with these supplements, trying different things, uh, this ongoing experimentation is an attempt to do that. In fact, a lot of the uh, online forums that they participate in are devoted to this sort of exchanging wisdom about what works and what doesn't, different brands to try, different supplements to try, uh, brands to avoid, places to avoid. Everyone's trying to figure it out because they're all pretty much on their own. 
there are also a number of doctors, few and far between, geographically distant, actually, um, who treat this with varying approaches, perhaps varying theories, it would seem. Let's talk about Dr. Gray. Yes, Dr. Gray. He uh, <laughs> he has a practice uh, down in southern Arizona, um, and I visited him at his home, um, and he very kindly made room for us. Uh, he r- ran uh, and maybe still runs an environmental medicine clinic uh, and um, very colorful guy and very smart guy. I've been speaking with journalist Oliver Brody, the author of The Sensitives, The Rise of Environmental Illness and the Search for America's Last Pure Place. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of TechNation are available on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Amazon's Alexa, among others. Direct links are available at technation.com. In the second half of our show, we hear from a San Diego company already working on a treatment to disrupt parainfluenza and influenza infections. Could it work to treat COVID? Stay with us. Tech Nation, I've been speaking with journalist Oliver Brody about the sensitives, the rise of environmental illness, and the search for America's last pure place. Yes, Dr. Gray. He uh, <laughs> he has a practice uh, down in southern Arizona. Um, his view is basically that environmental illness is a genetic disease, um, that um, that because of the environment that we have created for ourselves, uh, our ability to process toxins has basically decreased uh, because of mutagens in the environment um, and uh, an increasing inability that people have to manufacture the um, enzymes they need to process toxins and uh, eliminate them from their bodies. So in his view, depending on you know what part of your DNA has been damaged or is not up to snuff, um, that's going to determine what enzyme uh, is gonna, is missing, and therefore, uh, what part of your body or what system of your body is going to be impacted? Whether it's you know your endocrine system or your neurological 
uh, or uh, your immune system or whatever. So um, it was it was a nice explanation insofar as it accommodated all of the many baffling different symptoms that um, sensitives can display. And then there is something called the hell toxin. What is that? Oh, wow. Yeah, hell toxin. Um, hell toxin is a kind of a placeholder for a experience that sensitives have that is really bad. Um, so whenever they have a really violent reaction, um, uh, and this is speaking very broadly, um, I'm talking about a very small segment of sensitives, those who are very seriously afflicted. Um, but if they have this reaction, many of them will assign it to quote-unquote hell toxin. So it's basically a placeholder. Um, and it was very interesting to me because it reminded me of uh, how people used to think of disease before there are medical explanations for it. You could attribute it to the devil, which was a perfectly good way of making sense of something. It was a way of saying that this is really bad and it's out of my hands, um, you know, all of which is true for what they are experiencing. So, um, you know, there's obviously, there's no um, scientific um, explanation or justification for them. And your hell toxin might be different from my hell toxin. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you could have endless debates, theological debates, I guess, about, uh, you know, whether this uh, toxin exists or what it consists of. Uh, but it basically is, it's a way, again, to, for sensitives to feel like they have some control over their bodies and their experience. Oliver, how did you become interested in this? Oh, um, a couple of reasons. Uh, first of all, because I, I I was feeling a great uncertainty myself uh, because I was always hearing warnings about chemicals and didn't really know how to respond, how I should uh, react, uh, how I should change my behavior. It just seemed that I was expected to kind of live with these uncertainties, and it was kind of... Um, it made me want to. It made me want to get my hands on some kind of certainty. Like I wanted to figure out what the hell was going on, uh, and so it seemed that going out into the world and actually trying to figure it out uh, was a good way to do that. Um, and then it very quickly turned into something else because uh, the more I learned about sensitives, the more I understood um, about the, the nature of their suffering, which was uh, so profound. Um, you know, it's called by some people. It's known as the divorce disease because your life can just completely fall apart. You lose not just uh, your all of your assets as you're paying for um, medical procedures or um, interventions of various kinds, um, and you may lose your loved ones, you may lose your friends. I know one guy who lost $800,000 because he bought multiple houses, um, all of which, or none of which, rather, he was able to live in uh, by the end of it. Anyone listening to this, you know, we hear the 85,000 chemicals, the 9,000 food additives, the 17 pesticides. How did we get here? Oh, it's a good question. Um, and I was wondering the same thing. Um, and it began in, in a place you wouldn't expect. Uh, and, and the way I my read on it is that it began with human vanity because it was basically a desire for fancy clothes. Um, so this takes us back to the 19th century uh, during the cotton boom. Uh, and the cotton boom changed things because uh, eventually it made uh, cheap 
relatively well-made clothes available for everyone. The problem was is that there, there weren't any dyes to dye these clothes with uh, because dyes were still made in this very old-fashioned way. For instance, you know, one kilogram of uh, red dye would require something like 100,000 female uh, cochineal insects that are sort of bred in Mexican cacti and uh, hand-harvested. Yellow dye was made from guano imported from Peru. So, you know, once you start... Um, dying millions and millions of shirts, that's not going to do it anymore. It was around this same time that this young man, very young, 18 years old, uh, William Perkin, was uh, working in a chem lab in England. And this was at a time when the British Empire was still thriving. Uh, and the, the greatest bane of the British Empire at this time was malaria. So uh, in this lab, they were trying to find some synthetic version of quinine. So uh, this young man, 18 years old, takes the problem home with him uh, where he has a garret in the top floor of his family's house, and he's tinkering away up there, and he ends up producing by accident this purple dye. Uh, so that was the beginning of a new era as soon as this dye started swirling through that beaker. Um, and in part, I think he was so excited when he saw it because purple, uh, as most people know, was regarded as a pretty special and, and royal color. It was not easy to make purple the old-fashioned way. The old-fashioned way involved, involved lots of lichens. So it was pretty expensive uh, to produce and also prone to fade. So he figured that he had something here. And indeed he did. Uh, eventually, the discovery led to the discovery of many other uh, dyes. And uh, in the process of manufacturing these dyes, there were byproducts. And these byproducts eventually gave rise to the chemical industry, uh, mostly in Germany. It shifted over to Germany at some point. Um, and it was the Germans who invented the industrial lab, which really took things to a new level. Uh, but from dyes, we got... Pharmaceuticals, um, aspirin was invented in 1898. Then it was Monsanto in 1907 that invented the first antipyretic. These were all from byproducts of dyes. Um, photography after that, and then 1909 is uh, Leo Bakeland. Most people uh, may, may know this name. He's a guy who invented uh, the predecessor to plastic, and so we are off and running. Um, so. It was the dyes that started everything. The way I tell the story is it's basically between two men. Perkin is one, and the second is uh, this other guy, Fritz Haber, who came a few decades after him. So Fritz Haber's story is, uh, this is kind of a tragic story, but a really good one in a way. Um, he was Jewish, and his father blamed him for... Uh, because his mother died in childbirth. So his father always sort of held this against him. So there's this father-son grudge. His father, because he was Jewish, said to him, don't aim too high. Because if you were Jewish and you did aim too high, you're likely to get knocked down at that time in Germany. His father was actually a, um, a dye salesman. Uh, but um, Fritz Haber wasn't having this. Uh, he felt confined by his father, and he basically... Um, disowned his father and Judaism as well and started making his way in the world and eventually found a place. Uh, in fact, he was the guy who figured out a way to manufacture synthetic 
uh, nitrogen, which was very important because it was needed to um, supply the German artillery uh, during World War I. Uh, in fact, he was uh, awarded the Nobel Prize for that because nitrogen is also an important element in fertilizer. Um, but what happened eventually is that uh, this is another byproduct story, one byproduct of the, um, uh, the work he was doing with nitrogen was chlorine. And chlorine, uh, he supervised the production of it for use in World War I and after that, uh, mustard gas. So um, this was his contribution. The sad part of the story is um, that the chemical institute that he was working with um, was the same one that developed Zyklon A and later Zyklon B uh, in 1924, which was, of course, the chemical that was used to destroy the Jews in World War II. So uh, Haber, we recall, was himself a Jew, and at the end of his life, he uh, was forced to flee to England. And uh, at that point, he, his views on technology underwent a sudden shift, and he described it uh, as fire in the hands of small children. There's one other piece of the story that I, that I kind of like, and it has to do with this other guy, Heinrich Zanger. Zanger was a friend of Einstein, and he studied the effects of Haber's gases on soldiers in World War I. So he was uh, one of the founders of probabilistic toxicology. One of the things that he talked about was the importance of technology staying one step ahead of uh, the risks that technology itself creates. And that if, we, if that doesn't happen, that's when we start to get in real trouble. So, you know, one of the questions that was going through my mind as I was writing this book was, have we reached that point yet? Are we in real trouble yet? I mean, are we, are we in as control uh, of these risks that we ourselves have created as we need to be or as we'd like to be? Well, Oliver, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you come back and see us again. It was my pleasure. My guest today is Oliver Brody. His book is The Sensitives, The Rise of Environmental Illness and the Search for America's Last Pure Place. It's published by Simon & Schuster. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation. Many biotech companies were able to pivot with the emergence of COVID. And why? Because they were working on products that had applicability in treating, diagnosing, and or preventing COVID-19 infections. Just such a company was Anson Biopharma in San Diego. They were in the final phase, that's phase three, of testing their drug to disrupt viruses which caused influenza and para-influenza. I asked Anson Biopharma's chief medical officer, Dr. Daniel Lewis, you're in the business of disrupting viruses. How did COVID disrupt Anson? We were in the throes of a very important phase three clinical trial in para-influenza. Para-influenza is the, the virus that you probably commonly know that causes the croup. Uh, and we also looked at our product as a potential treatment for patients with severe hospitalized uh, influenza or the flu. And we were conducting these clinical trials. Everything was going great. And then along comes COVID. And we had a choice. We could sit back and wait for the COVID pandemic to run its course, 
or we could uh, jump in and see if we had a potential solution uh, for this disease. So we were very fortunate to have some data from several years ago that demonstrated our drug could work in MERS, uh, which is the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which also is a coronavirus. And based on that data, we were able to uh, convince the Chinese FDA, uh, essentially their regulatory body, to allow us to treat a few patients in Wuhan, China. Oh, my goodness. And when was that? Well, that was in late February of 2020, and we were fortunate that the first two patients we treated who had severe pneumonia, bilateral disease with uh, 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 requiring oxygen supplementation, et cetera, were treated. And over the course of the 10 days that we treated those patients, they were both able to come off of their oxygen and ultimately be discharged from the hospital. So they allowed us to treat two more patients. And likewise, we were able to uh, improve those two patients clinically. They both had much better uh, oxygenation, were able to come off of their uh, oxygen, and were both discharged from the hospital. We took that data, um, emboldened by those results and encouraged by those results, and we approached the U.S. FDA and asked for an opportunity to test our drug here in the United States. So you've come to the United States, right. and now what are you doing here with the FDA? Right. So the first thing we did when we got to the United States was we asked for the FDA to allow us to conduct a formal clinical trial here in this country. The patients that we were enrolling here in this country are patients who have been hospitalized, patients who are very, very sick with this disease. These patients require oxygen. They can have very severe pneumonia in multiple sections of their lungs, and they require oxygen to breathe. So these patients are very severe, and they're at very high risk of ending up on a respirator. So we take those patients, and we uh, divide them into two groups, groups that will see, receive our drug and those groups who will receive a placebo. And then those patients are treated over the course of the next 10 days. We then examine those results to determine if our drug truly made any difference in making those patients better. Now, for the placebo people, are they getting absolutely nothing at this point other than, say, a ventilator or air, air therapy of some type? Right. So the patients who are enrolled to the placebo are still getting the standard of care. So whatever the physicians were able to cobble together to treat their disease, they will get. They also get drugs for their fever. They get hydration. They get oxygen, etc. But they don't get a separate drug for treatment of their COVID. Now, certainly drugs before they get, you know, all the way past phase three, you're in phase three already with this drug. Then you start to get the brand name and all that kind of thing. And the, initially, you're just dealing with the name of the compound. And the name of this compound is DOS-181. That's, that's the drug? That's what we call it. <laughs> DOS-181. <laughs> Catchy. We, 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 we're going to need a new name at some point. But right now, that's our, uh, that's our, the, our drug. And it's a... It's a. It is early in the in the process, so hopefully we'll have a, a nice uh, name that rolls off the tongue very soon. Yeah. Well, first we just we're only concerned that it works. Right. <laughs> that's the that's we, the first thing. <laughs> if we can, yes, if we can get it to work, that would be a step one, a wonderful step one.
Wonderful, Stefan. So let's roll back now. Before COVID, you're trying to uh, treat this parainfluenza as well as other kinds of respiratory viruses. And I do have to say, it's not the RSV, right? Right, respiratory syncytial virus. No, our drug is not being tested for respiratory syncytial virus at the moment. Uh, We may look at that in the future. But right now, it's uh, mainly reserved for influenza or the flu and, and parainfluenza, also known as the croup. Now, let me ask you this. What does it do? It's a very interesting molecule. It clips receptors off of the cells of your lung that will prevent the virus from getting into the lung. So it essentially blocks the doorway. And so it goes to cells that are... All over your body or just around your lungs or, or where? Our drug is an inhaled drug. So it, uh, it goes directly to the lung, right to the site of action. And very little of it will escape into the general body. That's why you get very few side effects or you're unlikely to get side effects from this medication that would be in the rest of the body. You really just have it focused right there on the lung where the infection is. So if I know my COVID at this point, what happens is that once this virus gets in your lungs, that's when things really take off. Then, then it's very difficult. Right. So there's two things that happen. First, once the COVID gets in the lung, it replicates or makes many, many more copies of itself. And that process can destroy the lung. It can destroy the lung tissue. So what you really need in a therapeutic, in a drug, is to prevent the virus from being able to make copies of itself, and you need it to stop destroying so much of your lung tissue so you can breathe. You know, I didn't get to tell you the difference between pneumonia caused by a bacteria versus pneumonia caused by a virus. That distinction is important because bacteria, we all know, can grow on their own. But viruses require the the lung tissue of the patient to be able to reproduce themselves. So if you can stop that virus from getting into those cells, you can make a really big impact on the virus's ability to cause a disease. So one of the things that we like about our approach is that our drug, by clipping off these receptors, may be able to stop the virus from going through its normal life cycle, a cycle that requires it to get inside the lung cells. So in a sense, you're just basically stopping the virus in its tracks. You're not doing anything to the virus other than not letting it get into cells so it can't replicate and go and do its business another time with other cells. Exactly. Our, our goal is to stop it in its tracks. <laughs> Obviously, We don't know the other things that it may be stopping getting into that cell. Mm -hmm. Uh, Is there some some short-term or long-term horizon where this could be sort of dangerous in itself? Right. So we're clipping these receptors off of the cell. So a natural question is, wait a minute, why were those receptors on the cell in the first place? What did they do? Are they an important functional uh, uh, 
are they do they have a very important function for the for the patient and the answer is those cells are actually i'm sorry those receptors are actually responsible for self recognition so they allow the immune system and other cells to recognize those lung tissue cells as part of yourself as part of the patient and when we clip them with this dos181 they grow back over the course of a period of anywhere from 3 days to 2 weeks so losing them over this short period of time for this acute infection is really not a problem since they'll come back on their own and when you say when they grow back are you talking about the receptors or are you just talking about the cells themselves the receptors grow back so if the virus gets into a cell it often kills that cell that cells pretty much gone but if there are cells around it and you're able to clip those receptors those cells are then protected from the virus and the virus will not get in there and destroy those tissue so we're looking at this moment in the disease where the virus is really attacking the lung tissue that's the moment of opportunity well that's what makes this covid pneumonia so bad So there are a lot of things that cause pneumonia there are a lot of viruses that can cause pneumonia but this one in particular is extremely destructive unlike other diseases that may cause some cough or some fever or some you know fatigue or muscle aches etc covid does all of that plus it literally destroys it it destroys the lung tissue that's why patients end up requiring oxygen and they have such difficulty breathing even after patients recover from covid a lot of times they've lost some of their lung function and they're not able to do the the things that they were able to do before for simply being short of breath so what has happened to the current phase 3 trial of dos181 uh, which is meant for the influenza and uh, parainfluenza patients what what is happening there well the trial is still open it's sort of like in a hibernation mode sort of like the rest of our you know economy being closed down to some degree because we're we're so focused on on covid but if a patient were to come in and they did have the para influenza or they had the influenza we would go ahead and enroll those patients under those uh, particular protocols but right now the main focus is with with you know with everyone is covid have you learned anything from this covid experience that will come back and apply to your original trial Yes, we are learning all the time. COVID is a is a very 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 important teacher for for medical scientists and certainly for researchers as we learn about how the body responds to COVID and why COVID is able to defeat the body's normal immune system, the the body's normal ways of fighting off uh infections we then can modify our treatment both in the timing and perhaps even modify the the molecule itself to make it a much better anti uh antivirus medicine i think what's so interesting about this approach is that it doesn't matter what the virus is 
any virus, even the same COVID virus mutated 100 times, if you can't get into the cell, if the virus can't get into the cell, it can't replicate inside that cell and destroy the cell and go on to do, do it all over again. It really doesn't matter which virus it is. That's one of the things we really love about this approach. It's very, very difficult to make vaccines for the reasons that you just mentioned. These viruses mutate quite a bit. And when they do, they find ways to get around the vaccines. The same is true if you have a drug where you're focusing on the virus and some element of the virus's life cycle. You're, you're very, very vulnerable to that virus uh, mutating and then finding a way to get around your medication, get around however you're trying to inhibit it. But we don't look at the virus because the virus is like a moving target. We focus on the host. We focus on the patient. So the patient is very conserved. Humans are humans. So if you're able to protect the human, then the virus itself no matter how it mutates, will have a much more difficult time causing disease. Now, you said that it takes two to three days uh, for the receptors to come back. Mm -hmm. At the end of that, is there a need to continue to administer the drug? No, usually not. I, I like to think of COVID in particular, but a this is true for a lot of viruses that infect the respiratory tract. They're really just sort of fire starters. You mentioned RSV before. It's really a fire starter. It starts this immune system reaction that goes out of control, that's, that's, that's way too strong for this little virus. And that immune system reaction is what really ultimately causes the patients the most harm. So the kindling is there. That's the virus. And unless it starts a fire, it just blows out. Correct. It's, it's amazing. For a lot of these patients, you will get the virus coming in, like you said, in the first three or four days. It'll cause some symptoms. The patient will get sick. Some of those patients will end up going to the hospital. And then 10 days, 20 days into this whole infection, the virus is gone, but your immune system is still raging out of control. And that, that piece is one of the most confounding problems with this virus. Well, I hope you'll come back, Dr. Lewis, and speak to us again. Let us know how it all worked out. Oh, I can't wait. This is such an exciting time. I think that we find ourselves where with an opportunity to help, and, and that's really what we're trying to do. Hopefully, DOS-181 can be one of those, uh, one of those treatments that, that helps us get through this disease. Dr. Stanley Lewis is the Chief Medical Officer of Anson Biopharma in San Diego. More information is available at AnsonBiopharma.com. That's Anson, A-N-S-U-N, AnsonBiopharma.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn. Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb-Zessiger and Robert Powell. 
with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and BiotechNation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. Thank you.